We are back. Since last week's program, a previous guest of ours, former White House counsel John Dean, traveled up to Capitol Hill to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee on behalf of a seemingly futile Democratic bid to censure George Bush for the eavesdropping program that is a part of his war on terror. Dean said, I appear today because I believe with good reason that the situation is even more serious. No president that I can ever find in the history of our country has really ever adopted a policy of expanding presidential powers for the sake of expanding presidential powers. And I think that's what we have going on in this presidency. The last time John Dean traveled up to Capitol Hill, his testimony would be central to the eventual resignation of Richard Nixon in 1974. Uh, The Senate, of course, under Russ Feingold, was proposing a censure resolution, and Dean spoke out in support of that seldom-used measure to discredit a president. When he appeared on our show two years ago, we asked him about impeachable offenses uh, of a president, a matter in which, of course, he is something of an expert, having just written a book titled Worse Than Watergate. Here's what he had to say. You've written, George W. Bush and Richard B. Cheney have engaged in deceit and deception over going to war in Iraq. This is an impeachable offense, also evidence of the mentality that characterizes the Bush-Cheney presidency, which led to other abuses by presidential power, not unlike those underlying Watergate, only worse. What galvanized you to write those words? Well, I actually started this whole effort. uh, It isn't a book I'd ever planned. I write a bi-weekly column, and in my column I was noting that uh, I was trying to send up some flares. This this administration was headed down a path that was very familiar to me, and I wasn't sure if they realized which path they were on. And uh, the more I looked at it, the sooner I realized that, uh, indeed, they knew exactly what they were doing, that this was not a mistaken path, but a matter of a policy. And uh, secrecy is a hot button with me, and I would have written the same book uh, had it been about a Democratic presidency. John Dean was talking two years ago about an administration which he saw as being obsessed with politics and secrecy. And he, like so many people, was... Um, quite appalled at the level of deception exercised by the Bush administration as part of the ramp-up to the Iraq War. It's somewhat curious to us here on Radio Parallax that uh, it is the matter of domestic spying that seems to be uh, so outraging people. We think that, uh, you know, what happened in terms of foreign policy is so much worse. We would also refer you to... um, Lewis Lapham's essay. Lewis Lapham is the editor of Harper's Magazine. The current edition on the newsstands has an essay titled The Case for Impeachment, Why We Can No Longer Afford George W. Bush. We'd like to also refer you in that same issue of Harper's to the annotation section, which usually has a very uh, curious item. Uh, This month's refers to the selling of the flu vaccine. They take excerpts from a PowerPoint presentation by Glenn Nowak of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, better known as the CDC. Uh, These slides were used to explain how certain messages generate buzz and drive demand in regards to the flu vaccination. The magazine reports that the 2004 National Influenza Vaccine Summit were, were the recipients of this presentation notes that in a 2002 focus group, the CDC had determined that death statistics in its influenza prevention literature were, quote, eye-catching and motivating, unquote. Participants in the study believed that 20,000 deaths was compelling, comma, frightening, 
and, quote, should be a part of the headline, unquote. But they noted how uh, when in 2004, 50 million doses of vaccine suddenly became unavailable, Americans were understandably panicked. The CDC, with its knowledge of PR, downgraded its scary portrayal of the flu to an annoying illness from which most people, quote, will recover just fine, unquote. It stressed the protective benefits of regular hand washing. And once the alleged crisis abated, the agency returned to its strident communications plan. By next fall, the CDC director was publicly stating that the flu is, quote, not a benign illness. It's a, it's a well-done piece. They note in it that uh, how they, uh, the CDC thought a good way to, quote, motivate behavior was to describe a flu season as very severe, more severe than previous years, and deadly, all terms that had been used to frame the 2003-2004 threat. Yet that winter's flu was later ruled typical and, quote, medium in terms of overall impact, unquote. We've, uh, we've told you on this program before that the flu shot does tend to get a little bit oversold, but uh, I would like to quote from the article that notes that the efficacy of the vaccine is itself uncertain. Each year, hundreds of clinically indistinguishable illnesses are diagnosed as flu, yet CDC records show that the influenza virus caused only one-eighth of those. But it actually is a bit even worse than that. Uh, at least half of the illnesses that are thought to be the flu, well, it turns out that even the best shots had no effect on them. After reviewing more than three decades of data, scientists at the National Institute of Health last year concluded, quote, we could not correlate increasing vaccination coverage after 1980 with declining mortality groups in any age group. Now, you know, we think on this program a flu shot's not that big a deal, and if you are in a high-risk group, it is something you probably should do. But on the other hand, you know, if you're a normal, healthy individual, you know, to have a sore arm for you know, 24 hours, maybe feel a little bit under the weather, um, for the sake of something that statistically probably isn't going to make a huge difference, you know, that's something you need to weigh. And, uh, and much, much worse than the matter of, uh, of flu vaccines and, and their marketing uh, would be the article in the current edition of the Atlantic Monthly titled The Drug Pushers. The article details in some, you know, rather depressing detail uh, the matter of drug detailing, how representatives of pharmaceutical companies go about trying to influence the uh, prescription writing habits of America's doctors, and they do a pretty good job of it. I can assure you without, uh, you know, pointing any fingers that uh, there's a lot of skullduggery as regards what drugs get onto various formularies of HMOs, hospitals, etc. Carl Elliott in the article noted that a former drug rep told him about uh, a colleague who had somehow managed to persuade a pharmacist to let him secretly write the prescribing protocol for antibiotic use at a local hospital. It's a good article. I need to quote a few uh, passages from it. They note that the relationship between doctors and drug reps has never been uncomplicated for reasons that should be obvious. The first duty of doctors, at least in theory, is to their patients. Doctors must make prescribing decisions based on medical evidence and their own clinical judgment. Drug reps, in contrast, are salespeople. They swear no oaths, they take care of no patients, and they profess no high-minded ethical duties. Their job is to persuade doctors to prescribe their drugs. The article notes if reps are lucky, their drugs are good. 
The studies are clear and their job is easy. But sometimes reps must persuade doctors to prescribe drugs that are marginally effective, exorbitantly expensive, difficult to administer, or even dangerously toxic. The reps that succeed are rewarded with bonuses or commissions. The reps that fail may find themselves unemployed. Another excerpt. For decades, the medical community has debated whether gifts and perks from reps have any real effect. Doctors insist that they do not. Studies in the medical literature indicate just the opposite. Doctors who take gifts from a company, studies show, are more likely to prescribe that company's drugs or ask that they be added to their hospital's formulary. The pharmaceutical industry has managed this debate skillfully, pouring vast resources into gifts for doctors while simultaneously reassuring them that their integrity prevents them from being influenced. The article notes how in recent years, like so many other aspects of American life, uh, things have gone completely uh, over the edge in terms of just, uh, you know, commercialism. The pharmaceutical industry began hiring more and more reps, uh, many with backgrounds in sales rather than, say, pharmacy, nursing, or biology. Older reps um, told Carl Elliott that during this period uh, in the 90s, the industry replaced the serious detail man with, quote, Pharma Barbie and, quote, Pharma Ken, whose medical knowledge was exceeded by their looks and catering skills. A newer regimented style of selling began to replace the improvisational, more personal style of the old school reps. Whatever was left of an ethic of service gave way to an ethic of salesmanship. The, uh, the article even questions whether our concept of doctors is going to survive uh, very much longer into the future, at least doctors as we've always conceived them. The author states, we simply live in a country that has decided that the traditional figure of the doctor is not worth preserving in the face of modern economics. Instead, we put our trust in the market. Notes, we've gotten used to a world where we have shoes, but no cobblers. We can copy documents without scriveners. We can uh, make tools without blacksmiths. We can produce books in the absence of bookbinders. We've left the old world behind, and for the most part, we don't miss it. As the figure of the traditional doctor fades away, it is being replaced by a figure akin to the drug rep. I hope that's overstating the case, but the article does note that the American Medical Student Association may be the only mainstream medical organization with a principled position against taking industry gifts. It stands in striking contrast to the American Academy of Family Practice, which last year refused to grant exhibition space at its annual conference to No Free Lunch, a physician-led advocacy group that advises physicians just say no to drug reps. The AAFP said the group's goals were, quote, not within the character and purpose, unquote, of the conference, but it allowed pharmaceutical companies, McDonald's, and the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States to exhibit. It did reverse its decision about no free lunch after there were protests by a number of AAFP members. The article closes with a little anecdote uh, that I, I think I have to, I have to share. Uh, after putting forth the premise that, you know, it's all depending upon drugs and pharmaceutical companies and, you know, we depending so much on that at the expense of, you know, what used to be the broad uh, range of medicine, one of the author's sources told him about um, a med check clinic conducted where a psychiatrist was, uh, uh, well, a high prescribing psychiatrist associated with a certain drug company was just checking large numbers of patients in quick succession. The job was mainly to be sure that their medications were in proper order. At one point during the day, 
the rep told the author. A cheerful man in a wheelchair rolled into the office. Barely looking up from a stack of charts on his desk, Dr. C started quizzing the man about his medications. After a few minutes, the man interrupted. Look at me, Dr. C. Notice anything different? Dr. C pushed his glasses up on top of his head and looked carefully at the patient for a few seconds before replying, No, I don't. What's up? The man smiled and said excitedly, I got my legs cut off. After a moment of silence, Dr. C smiled. The man laughed. Neither seemed upset. In a few minutes, the session ended, and the next patient came in. All right, we're in a medical mode, so I think I'll close with this final item uh, of the day from New Scientist magazine, the current issue, noting that hyperactivity drugs are out of control. This is not the first time the uh, British-based magazine has uh, written about uh, our hyperactivity drugs. We've talked about it on this program before. This article says the figures are mind-boggling. Nearly 4 million Americans, most of them children and young adults, are being prescribed amphetamine-like stimulants to treat Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. Now, amid reports of rare but serious side effects, leading researchers and doctors are calling for a review of the way ADHD is dealt with. Many prescriptions are being written by family doctors with little expertise in diagnosing ADHD. The article also notes that it's just as worrying that large numbers of children who do have ADHD are going underdiagnosed. Both trends, they say, could lead to problems with drug dependency. In an FDA meeting last week, they noted that up to 5% of children taking these drugs have disturbing hallucinations, often involving worms, snakes, or insects. You know, I know from people uh, in, in medicine that there are doctors who are prescribing Ritalin on the basis of a, an over-the-phone conversation. So when the article notes I, that in many cases family doctors are prescribing the drugs after just a few minutes of conversation based largely on evidence of boisterousness, I know that's true. Ritalin, of course, is an amphetamine, like crank. And William Carlson of Harvard Medical School notes that they've studied the drug's effect in animals and believes that they do leave some lasting effects on the brain, even if its exact nature is not known. Stimulant drugs leave molecular signatures on the brain, and we have to be very careful, he says. Diagnosis needs to be taken less lightly. That is it for today's program. We would like to thank once again Christine Todd Whitman, former New Jersey governor and former head of the EPA, for speaking with you, the listening audience here at KDVS. We've had a lot of serious topics uh, of late on this program, and we like every so often to lighten the mood considerably. We will do so on next week's program, where we'll be joined by author Martin J. Smith, who, along with co-author Patrick Kiger, have written a book called Oops! 20 Life Lessons from the Fiascos that Shaped America. We'll talk about why we don't have flying cars and about the immortal 1967 Jimi Hendrix Monkeys Consort Tour. Also, welcome back to the program after a long hiatus, our adult entertainment correspondent, the legendary Christy Canyon, who has gone from being uh, 
a guest here on KDVS, to having her own program on Sirius Satellite Radio. We also hope to be joined by our sports correspondent, Sean Minton. It it should be good for quite a laugh uh, next week, so please tune in next Thursday at 5. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Now, stay tuned for Todd.